Listener Production. Tarung Chawla found celebrity for a reason that he'd rather never have happened. In 2015, his sister Nikita was brutally murdered by her former partner. The subsequent media coverage and Tarung's tireless advocacy to end violence against women has made him a household name. Tarung is a friend of mine and he is passionate about broadening our community's understanding of what causes family violence. He talks to boys and men regularly about gender inequality and how we can reduce the number of women who are still subjected to domestic abuse. Tarung is now the host of a brand new podcast called There's No Place Like Home, where he speaks with 10 survivors of family violence about their experiences. No doubt he will talk about that today. So if family violence or sexual assault is something that brings up stuff for you, then perhaps this isn't the episode for you. If you do decide to listen, you can always call the National Helpline 1-800-RESPECT. My name is Jamila Rizvi and welcome to The Weekend Briefing. The Weekend List is on its way where Tate McGregor joins us to recommend what to watch, to see, listen, do, cook this weekend. But first, here is the truly incredible Tarang Chola. Tarang, welcome to The Weekend Briefing. I am so thrilled to have you here. I want to start by being a bit of a sticky beak about who you were as a kid. Can you tell me a little bit about what life was like at home for you growing up? Oh, of course, it's great to, to be on, Jamila. Thank you for having me on. Um, life as a kid was, uh, I like to say it was like conventional Australian upbringing, but what I leave out of that or what I forget to put in that is that we came to Australia as migrants from Delhi in India. And so like my version of a classic Australian upbringing was not the same as what say um, kids who've lived here for generations or First Nations Australian people might think of as like a, a, you know, a classic Australian upbringing. And I think therein lies the beauty of it, like the diversity of the kind of upbringings that we have. For me, it was footy in winter was like a fixture, cricket in summer, but being from a migrant family, homework in both summer and winter. It was like, that was the thing. The education was kind of drilled into us from a young age. Me and my sister are being like such a, a pivotal, important part of life. So there was no excuse to not do it. I found every excuse possible to not do it. Every kind of four weeks, I'd get like a new phase or a new trend. I was one of those boys that were like growing up, was trying to figure out his sense of belonging and place in the world. But growing up was like this kind of childhood that was filled with love, not a lot of material possessions and belongings, but a lot of love, you know, a lot of family holidays where we could, but not the kind of family holidays where like we didn't have a beach house, we didn't have that kind of life growing up. But what we did have was many, many eskies full of Indian food. So whenever we went on a trip away, an overnight trip, there'd be like eight eskies. Full of food. Yeah. You know, and it was like the, yeah, the, just in case. Yeah, the boot was just full of food. And dad had this green Mazda station wagon and it was just full of food. And it was like along the way we'd stop because, you know, when you've got young kids, you've got to stop like every couple of hours to, you know, so they can stretch their legs, get a break. They're always interested in what's going on outside. So for us, it was like stop every few hours and then just have a like a full on spread like a degustation at every possible road pit stop. And then other people there who didn't have any food with them or just had muesli bars or like, you know, roll-ups or something, just whatever sustenance. Yeah, I would have been sitting there with my ham and cheese sandwich being like, oh, 
why don't we have good stuff? They approached it like, oh, we'll we'll barter you, like we'll swap. And then I think mum looked at what was on offer and was like, no, you can, you can just have this. Like I don't need anything back, but you could just literally just take this Indian food. We're, we're good for it. We've, we're packed enough. But, yeah, that was my childhood in a nutshell. It was a lot of a lot of love, a lot of happy family memories and also a lot of hard work, particularly my parents. They worked really, really hard, you know, like dad coming to Australia with a master's of engineering and then having to to do the first kind of jobs that he could, like stacking shelves on a supermarket shelf. Not that there's anything wrong with that at all whatsoever. Um, and the pandemic has shown us how important service industries are, you know, to our day-to-day life and to be able to, to um, do the things that we love to do. But it was this kind of thing for dad where it was like, oh, wow, I'm, I'm starting again. This is a blank slate. That taught us a valuable lesson you know, my sister and I growing up, that whatever you have is temporary and it can be taken from you at any stage. So, you know, work hard, be nice to others. And that was childhood for me. A lot of kids who grow up with parents who were first-generation migrants, and I'm, I'm one of them, my dad's also Indian, grow up with an element of pressure. It's become a stereotype right now, you know, that the Indian parents or the Chinese parents with the very high expectations that you become an engineer, a doctor or a lawyer and nothing else counts. I want to know, did you have that kind of pressure? Did your sister Nikki have that kind of pressure from your parents or were they a little bit different? It's so common what you said. And I think that early on, there was that kind of pressure. There was that um, perception that we need to do what society values as being important or noble and working hard. And I think that the shift that we've had as a society has been that like working hard now doesn't necessarily translate to a certain number of professions, particularly when we see people in positions of power and professions where that work considered very noble, but are now like, you know, some of the people lacking most in integrity and the values that really matter. I think that kind of shift happened in my family as well, where we saw that like you could be anything you wanted as long as you were really working hard. And I feel really lucky, you know, coming from an Indian background, a South Asian background, where there was the importance of those things, you know, drilled into us from a very young age, but there wasn't that pressure necessarily for my parents. That's not to say that I didn't feel it though. You know, like for me, I felt it because... We had all the same kind of like South Asian community, family, friends and stuff. So you'd go to like functions and everyone would be talking. And if you weren't on that same path, then you'd feel kind of like you're less than or you'd feel like you're not necessarily living up to your potential or who you should be. And you'd start, you know, that whole keeping up with the Joneses or like, you know, in India, keeping up with the Kapoor's or whatever. Like it's you kind of you're trying to... um you know, emulate other people rather than your own idea of happiness. And so I did that a little bit, particularly in high school. I remember thinking that I had this pressure to take subjects that I was not good at, you know, like I was not good at physics and biology. And I still took a few of them, like in my later years at high school. And I did woefully, like I did terrible in those subjects. And in my own ambition, I didn't try very hard because it was like I found it so hard that I was like, oh, there's no point really trying. But even in the instances where I did try really hard, it didn't come as naturally to me as it did to, say, others. I found myself kind of in this double bind of like what would help my parents look good in the community? But then I sort of once I started at university, that's when I figured out that like, hey, there are so many things available to you. For me, I went to a selective entry high school, right? So I was like surrounded by really, really bright people. And in that environment, it's tricky because like 
not only is it an all boys environment, so you're surrounded by this kind of culture of masculinity that can be limiting or oppressive, not necessarily always toxic, but certainly like limiting in terms of your scope of who you can be to express yourself and an emphasis on sports and success, particularly in that environment, academic success. That put a, a degree of pressure on me. And then when I got to university, it was like, hey, wow, okay. Like there are countless options. And also the opportunity to then, you know, going to an all boys high school from like year seven to 12, the opportunity to speak to girls and women and to be in a co-educational environment, to be around gender diverse people, to be around people that weren't strictly just predominantly straight men was like a, a breath of fresh air you know, because it helped me feel like a sense of belonging in the world. And I know for my sister, because she was four years younger than me, by the time that like I'd finished high school, I think my parents had seen the effects that it had on me and my psyche and growing up being in an environment that was certainly very privileged, but also limiting. So I think for her, they wanted the most well-rounded education. So they would never have stopped me from taking certain subjects, but they would have asked me like, is this what you want to do? Like if I didn't go down the secure kind of career path, they would have asked me like, are you comfortable doing this? Are you aware like how society will like, you know, be harder for you? You know, because you think of people that go into the arts, it's very, very hard, right? It's very difficult, particularly like creative arts and things like that. But the reality is that like without all of that stuff, particularly during the pandemic, we'd have no sustenance in society and certainly no civilization. So I think like from my parents' perspective with Nikki, it was like nurturing the talents that she had. And she was so creative from a very young age. Like I remember growing up from the age of like, say three, she was dancing. It started probably as just like a creative outlet. And then it became something where it was like, we observed that, hey, this kid's got talent. She's quite good at this. She had a passion for it as well and an aptitude. So it was like encouraging that. So where I was probably asked, hey, sure, you want to take this subject or that subject? She was just willfully encouraged to take performing arts and theatre and all of that stuff, you know, which is so progressive of my parents then, I think, you know, like South Asian parents would generally be like, go and become an accountant or a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer, or just do one of those like recognized quote unquote professions. Definitely don't go down another path or angle. So I think um, from that perspective, my parents were really progressive in how Nikki was allowed to flourish and express herself from a young age. And I also think that the benefit of that was that it promoted a sense of gender equality in me. It allowed me to see in practice what a woman choosing what she wants to do looks like. You know, because so, so for me, particularly like an, a, an older brother, younger sister dynamic, a lot of the older brothers are very protective of younger sisters, you know, and almost like in a creepy way where it's like there's a sense of ownership over them. And so for me, seeing her have agency from a very young age allowed me to understand those dynamics of gender equality and inequality. And a lot of what we're trying to change in society is around helping men to understand and supporting them to understand that women are distinct human beings with autonomy and agency. Because a lot of men and boys aren't raised in that thinking. They're raised in this idea, unwittingly at times, that women are objects or possessions or that they exist solely around men rather than his whole entity. So I think for me, that was one of the key lessons of, of growing up in an environment like what we had in my family was that Nikki had autonomy and agency to be herself. We all experience sliding doors kind of moments in our lives, right? Where you look back and you think that was 
a moment, literally sometimes seconds or minutes that changed the direction of my life, not just in the immediate aftermath, but ongoing and would shape it forever. Sometimes they're joyful moments. Sometimes they're suspenseful, difficult, triumphant moments. And sometimes they are moments of deep trauma. Your sister Nikki was killed in 2015. Can you tell me about what happened to her and how you found out that night? That was definitely or is definitely one of the pivotal moments that definitely changed the course, obviously in the most final of ways for Nikki, um, but then for everyone around her, you know, mum and dad and myself, it changed all of our lives and, and mine as well, particularly. It's strange, Jamila, because it's now seven years since she was killed. In many ways, it feels like those full seven years and more because there's been such a journey and so much stuff has happened, not only in my life, but generally since. But then in other moments, it feels like yesterday. Even yesterday feels a stretch. It feels like it could have been this morning. And I remember it, I think, so vividly like it was yesterday. So my sister and I had lunch plans for Sunday afternoon. And I remember the last text I ever sent her was just checking that she was going to be there. Right. And I was like, are you going to be there? And she just wrote back, OMG, um, can't wait, wouldn't miss it. And I thought, cool, we'll talk tomorrow. And then that tomorrow never came because overnight she was killed by her partner, um, like so many women in the context of separation, right? Like that final act of control that if I can't have her, then no one else can. And I remember the moment that we as a family found out because it was 6 a.m and two Victoria police officers in their blue uniforms knocked on the door and they asked my parents, do you know Nikita Chola? And my mom was like, yeah, well, what happened? Has she, she been in an accident or what's, is she okay? And they were like insistent that they come in and sit down, you know? And then that was the moment that they told us that she'd been killed. And, you know, the initial shock is like, this isn't real. This is like a practical joke this is horror like this is not funny anymore um and initially it is like that it's like (laughs) no like that that's not real but it was real and I remember my parents handing me a Victoria Police business card and on the back it had like handwritten like the head of homicide's name and his phone number and then I remember calling him at like 9am and him explaining like everything that they knew, and then a little bit about what happens next. And it is a whirlwind. Like, it is so, like, there is no sense of time or space anymore. You're really going through the motions. Then the court process begins, and that even isn't the first step. The first step is, like, dealing with the media and them hounding you. And, like, people finding out your phone number and, and, like, calling you, asking for grabs or exclusives. And it's really, it's this kind of hideous thing about the media in our country that they will be, and it's, I guess, it's a problem all over the world, but, like, particularly in our context where, like, they will want to be the first to get that scoop. Like, it's the most important thing. And it probably is for them. And it probably could be for advertisers. But at the core of it, there are human people. You know, these are real human stories of real people whose lives are irreversibly changed and shifted. And so for me, that was the pivotal moment, Nikki's death. And I remember a few of the victim-blaming comments that followed, you know, like someone said to me, what did she think he would do? Because she wanted to leave as though somehow like legitimizing or justifying a man's choice to use violence 
rather than going, you know what, it didn't work out. I'm upset about that. I'm angry about that. But that's the way things go. All the best. Bye. The way that a lot of people justified that triggered something in me, perhaps because of my upbringing around, you know, equality and and that whole thing about women's agency and autonomy. I was just like, hang on, I'm still here. I have to say something. I have to speak out. And also because I think that the way the mainstream media reported on Nikki's death and started going into like ethnocultural stereotypes around like honour killings and things like that, when we know that, so for instance, when the tragic um, murder of Hannah Clark and her three children occurred, we didn't use that term at all. The, the circumstances were not distinct from many other killings across cultures and across communities. But there was this perception that in these scenarios, when it's, you know, South Asian communities or Middle Eastern communities or African communities, that they're inherently patriarchal. When the patriarchy and, and gender inequality and misogyny exists universally, because it exists all across the world in different manifestations in different ways and to different degrees, right? I think no one rationally minded is discounting that, you know, the treatment of women is worse in some places than others. But that's not to say that in our own backyard here in Australia, it's not woeful at times. For me, the jolt back to reality was, oh, wow, a a woman a week on average is killed by a current or former male partner. And you can say those statistics. You and I have talked about this, Jamila, you know, at length, that when we think of it like that as a statistic, it's easy to distance ourselves. But when you think of, say, for example, our friendship and you think of, oh, I know someone whose sister was killed, you'll know women or you may have been, you know, subjected to harassment and abuse, all kinds of things. So it's like once we start putting it in human terms, we start to see, wow, this is a problem of epic magnitude. This is not some kind of small-scale issue. But the kind of media attention, the kind of coverage and the kind of conversations that are occurring about it make it seem like it could be a fringe issue, you know. But when women are 51% of the population, when we see the kinds of marches for justice that we're seeing, when we see whether it's Grace Tame, Brittany Higgins, Tanya Mani, Rosie Batty, Phil Cleary, others, when we see all of that kind of together, we start to see, wow, the scale of this problem is huge. That kind of pivotal moment triggered something where it was like, I don't like the inequality in society and I don't like this kind of underlying racial bias or whatever you want to call it. And I've got the privileges of of a university education. I need to say something. And so I did. It didn't start with a plan. It didn't start with like setting up foundations or this or that. It was just like, I've got to say something. You know, and it was the most organic of things. It was literally just like media camera in my face, say something. It's been seven years now and you've dedicated most of your working life since then to ending violence against women. And... You have done some extraordinary work along with others in this space, in advocacy, in the sector. And yet the truth of it is, despite some incredible work by a lot of people, the numbers aren't budging. The numbers aren't changing. There is still one woman a week killed by a current or former partner in this country. And some of those are names we all know because they make the front page of the paper and some of them barely make page 17, right? What is it going to take to actually shift the culture in this country 
that says this isn't a national emergency that we should be talking about every day? That's such a great question. There's two parts to that, right? In terms of the statistics and in terms of generating the kind of change that's required to um, make those statistics shift in the correct direction and reduce. So it's not one woman a week, but, you know, far fewer um, women and children and, and men who find themselves as victims of domestic abuse and violence too that are affected. In order for that to happen, it's going to take a lot of time, firstly. But the time itself is not enough. What we need to be doing in that is a combination of factors. There's obviously like political will, you know, and when we've got leadership that says and does things that can be openly interpreted as sexist or misogynistic or the treatment of women, whether it's in the corridors of power or in community groups and other kind of club settings, when we've got those kinds of instances of everyday sexism and misogyny, they're going to regrettably normalise the culture where violence against women is tolerated. Certainly not accepted. You know, no one, it's very few people that will actually say, oh, yeah, violence against women is okay, right? But a lot of people will tolerate it, you know, because they won't stand up against it. One of the things that's happened and is continuing to happen, and I can only hope continues to grow, is that we as a community and as a society listen to the voices of the victim survivors. You know, for a long time, we've sort of listened to the experts only when needed, right? But those who are affected firsthand have sort of been kept in the shadows, much like the issues of domestic and family violence have been kept as something to be discussed behind closed doors. It's not our problem. It's not a social problem. If it's happening in someone else's home, what can we possibly do? But if we have a shift towards gender equality, a greater understanding of the roles that men and women play to exist in concert with one another in such a way that doesn't diminish or downplay women's contributions and achievements in society, where there's shared labour in the home, where there is a greater sense of equality between women and men, we'll see, in my view, and the research backs this up, a reduction in harms to women. You know, not just violence against women. That's one of the things that is so crucial, I think, for us as a community to understand, to see the shift. If we want men to stop killing women, it's not simply having a society where, great, there's gender equality, so we'll see that reduction. If we have gender equality, we'll see many more improvements. We'll see a reduction in sexual harassment, sexual violence, sexual assault. We'll see a reduction in emotional abuse, psychological abuse, financial, stalking, other behaviour. Equality will lead to a reduction in many harms to women and men that then result in that kind of end of the spectrum. You know, so what happened to my sister Nikki or the final act of control perpetrated on my sister Nikki was murder, but it didn't start there. And I think that's very crucial for people to understand that coercive control, you know, behaviours designed to diminish and take away an individual's agency, particularly women's agency, are part of a pattern of abuse, you know, so that pattern of abuse eventually escalates. And that's not to say that anybody, you know, if they're a man who engages in emotional or psychological abuse will become a murderer. Far from it. The statistics don't support that theory at all. But there is a risk. You know, there is a risk that, that will escalate. And for a woman in an abusive relationship, she can't know whether she's the one who gets out safely and alive and lives to share her story and her experience and her life journey, or she ends up buried or cremated somewhere and people having a funeral and remembering her name. I think as a society, we have an obligation, uh, a civic obligation to do what we can to promote gender equality 
for the reduction of violence against women and children. You have been working on a new podcast that's released on the 22nd of February. It's called There's No Place Like Home and it tells the story of 10 victim survivors of family violence and domestic abuse. Can you tell me and the audience a little bit more about what you've been working on? So the podcast is called There's No Place Like Home and it's a partnership between Future Women, founded by Helen McCabe and Combank, who have a program called Next Chapter, supporting victims of domestic abuse and family violence achieve financial independence. Uh, and so that partnership has brought to fruition this podcast. And what we've done in, in creating this podcast, which I host, is to give listeners an unfiltered unbiased window into the voices and lives of 10 very diverse victim survivors. It's not simply just intimate partner violence in the way that the media reports it. We've got a transgender survivor of violence. So we examine some of the issues around violence within LGBTQI plus communities. We've got a woman who happens to be a dear friend of mine, Khadija Blah from Sierra Leone, who speaks about her lived experience of violence and some of the cultural issues that come into play. We've also got other survivors like Geraldine Bilston, who speaks about the issue around how violence can and sometimes does change you forever. And so there's this real window into what are the lives of these people like? And they're all at different points in their healing journey. Some have only been free from violence for a very short amount of time. Others for, you know, some decades. There's a woman in the final episode of the series, Deborah, and she's just now been free from her abuser for one year longer than she was in that abusive and violent relationship. And so for her, reflecting on who she is now and who she was then is, is something that for listeners is a real privilege and an opportunity that we don't get. And for me to host a series like that, was a real privilege because at every turn I was sort of reminded, you know, particularly with my sister Nikki being a performing artist, of her words in the back of my mind, you know, her words of soft, kind, subtle encouragement, almost like pulling me into line, like pulling my ear or something. Like I was imagining like when I needed to like tone it back a bit or, you know, ask different or better questions. And I think for us doing this kind of a series has been a real privilege and thanks obviously to Combank for supporting um, future women to create a series like this. I would encourage everyone to listen to it, not just those who work in the sector, but anyone who is concerned about the fact that we live in a society where one woman a week is being killed by a current or former partner, where one in 17 men is experiencing intimate partner violence, where one in three women from the age of 15 will experience some form of abuse. Like the, these numbers are human beings. And so what this series has done is actually allow people to see what those humans are like, to hear from them directly. And I think that is just so vital and so important because we don't get that opportunity often enough. And I think that hearing from people is one of the things that allows us to go, hang on, wow, I'm part of this, and to support people to be part of the solution, I think. Tarang, I could talk to you all day, but we are fast running out of time. I know that you were someone who came to this work because of personal experience and we've spent much of this conversation talking about you and your life and your work I wanted to ask if we could end by you telling us a little bit more about Nikki and what you think, if she were alive today, she would want from people listening right now. Yeah, wow. That's such a beautiful question. It's always difficult for me to answer because 
one of the things that I've learned in creating this podcast and one of the things that I've learned in always reflecting on who my sister was is that far too often, particularly with women who are victims of domestic violence and in the most horrible ways where their life is taken from them, is that as a community that becomes what we remember them for. That becomes the thing that their life is sort of centred around, which is the circumstances of their death. And to me, that is a great tragedy because Nikki was, you know, she was a performing artist, a creator and a dancer foremost, right? And beyond that, she was, a you know, a sister and, and a daughter and a friend. And, and so her identity had many layers and facets, as all people's identities do. For Nikki now, it would be very difficult for me to put myself in a position to say this is what she would think. I'd rather just have her around to have a conversation with her. You know, and I think unlike the brother that I was growing up where I talked over her, I would probably try to be the brother that asks her questions and lets her finish what she's saying. But if I could guess, I would be hopeful that she would want people to listen, to really listen to the words of the women who quite tragically count themselves lucky, you know, many of whom live with disabilities now, live with the lifelong emotional trauma, some with the lifelong physical trauma of their injuries that were sustained during the abusive relationships that they were in, where their perpetrators harmed them relentlessly. And yet they have a sense of hope. And so I think Nikki would mirror that. I think she would mirror that sense of hope and optimism that if people listen to There's No Place Like Home and, and get this opportunity to hear from victim survivors and experts, we can actually see that this is not an insurmountable problem. This is not a problem that scope is so large that we can't do anything about it. And that this isn't a problem where we need to wait for leaders. We don't need to wait for the Prime Minister or others to act. We can actually do things within our sphere of influence. In the home, we don't need, for example, leadership to be a certain way to start embodying gender equality at home. You know, for dads that are listening, you can do that. You know, that's something that's within your power. Having open conversations and honest conversations with the women in your life and really listening to, to where they're at and where they're coming from and hearing their perspective. And I think that hearing from the victim survivors gives an opportunity to do that. So I think from Nikki's perspective, I think she'd be hopeful about that. She always loved self-expression and creative expression. And I think that one of the things that we see in this podcast is that unfiltered, unbiased window into the voices of people. And that's their expression. That's their life in their words. So I think that she'd be very hopeful that people would listen. Tarang, thank you so much for being my guest on The Weekend Briefing. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for my conversation with Tarang Chawla. You can listen to his new podcast, There's No Place Like Home, wherever you're listening to your podcasts. I have also been involved behind the scenes on that project and it's something I'm really proud of. So I really do urge you to listen. Stick around though, because The Weekend List is on its way and Tate McGregor is jumping into the studio. Now it is time for The Weekend List and Tate McGregor joins me to tell us all about what you should be watching, doing, eating, reading, listening to this weekend. Tate, hit me with your best recommendations. So I was inspired after last week's chat about Lin-Manuel Miranda. Um, We talked about Encanto, which was a crazy soundtrack to the new Disney Pixar film. So I went and watched Tick, Tick, Boom. Um, It's the latest one on Netflix starring Andrew Garfield and it's based on an auto 
autobiographical musical of the same name by the playwright Jonathan Larson. So he's an aspiring up and coming um, composer in New York who eventually goes on to write the musical Rent. But this is based way before that. So essentially Jonathan, who's played by Andrew Garfield, works at the iconic Moondance Diner and he's putting together his first industry reading of his debut play that he's been working years on. So the stakes are high and it's all about the pressure of this artistic work on his like romantic relationships and his friendships, his self-doubt about whether he's made the right career choice. And then also intertwined with that is like the realities of the AIDS crisis at the time. It's direct by Lin-Manuel and the screenplay is by Stephen Levinson who actually wrote Dear Evan Hansen so it's in really good hands and the performance is amazing so Andrew Garfield never really sang before this movie and then he was cast in it and then Lin was like hey can you sing and turns out he damn well can and he crushes it he totally fits into this like theatre nerd aesthetic seamlessly. So if you're impartial to a musical movie, then I strongly recommend Tick, Tick, Boom on Netflix. What if the workshop happens and nothing changes? What then, Jonathan? Maybe I'm just wasting my time. Do you know how many Jonathan Larsons there are? One. Why should we blaze a trail? There's not enough time. I went to three friends' funerals last year. And nobody is doing enough. I'm not doing enough. All right, folks. If you want to bring it down a notch, if you want to tick, tick, chill, uh, I want to take you back. I want to take you back in time to a simpler time, friends, to a simpler time, which is the East End of London in the 1950s and 60s. I am very late to this TV party, but I think a lot of us are. I have been binging Call the Midwife, of which there are approximately 900 seasons uh, currently on stand. So if you get in, you can just get in there and get into your groove and chill there for a long time. I have been really enjoying this. It is a period drama series by the BBC. It is about a group of nurse midwives working in the East End of London, as I said, in the 50s and 60s. That period, what you need to know is that the East End of London was the poorest part of London. And you're talking about a period where there is still tuberculosis, where there are still diphtheria, where there are still these communicable diseases that can be especially dangerous for children and babies. It's just so quaint. Tate, it's so (laughs) quaint. It has had the most lovely critical reception. It's won all these awards and had even more nominations. It does actually tackle a lot of contemporary social, cultural, economic kind of questions. It looks at teen pregnancy. It looks at infertility. It looks at adoption. talks about stillbirth and miscarriage. It looks at the question of poverty and illness and how that shapes people's lives. But at the same time, because it does feel far away and because it does feel in the past, I think there's something quite comforting about it. It is deeply wholesome because most of these young midwives live with the local nuns who are the other midwives for that part of London. So it is so proper. There's no smartphone in sight, everybody. They date the old-fashioned way in this town and there's no sex before marriage and everything's very lovely. And I think right now a lot of us are still wanting a headspace that can escape the daily realities. Mm-hmm, definitely. And there's actually something really cheering and affirming seeing these people 60, 70 years ago dealing with pandemics that are killing huge numbers of people 
that we know humanity has solved since then. Like there's this real sense of humanity got past that. That happened. Tuberculosis killed people. Diphtheria killed people. And for the most part, certainly in the developed world, those diseases barely exist. And I have found that really hopeful and really touching. So if you're in the headspace for a bit of wholesome BBC goodness, I highly recommend it. I love that. We can get back to the simpler times again. You know, that's good. Yeah. Ride ride a bicycle, deliver a baby. That's what I say. And have some courtship. Screw the dating apps. Go court someone. I love that. And some courtship. Exactly. Okay, I'm finishing it off with a listen. As you know, I'm a big music nut and I've been really excited for this little EP that's just been put out by an Adelaide teenager called George Alice. So it's her debut EP called Growing Pains and you might know George. She won the Triple J Unearthed High competition back in 2019 and anyone who wins that competition instantly is thrown onto the radar. Everyone's watching out what they're going to do Um, She won it with her track Circles, but she's since drip fed a bunch of little singles like Teenager, Stuck in a Bubble, which has like over five and a half million streams. But she's never released a body of work, which is really interesting. This EP includes all of those tracks and then a few more but it's really well-rounded. So she's like an indie pop artist. She's got a bit of a sweet tooth sound, but it's not too glossy, if you know what I mean. It has some depth to it. I think that's a testament to the people that she's been able to work with. So she's teamed up with Japanese Wallpaper, Alex Leahy, written with Remy Wolf. Her spending the time of like pulling together all of these works and just making her debut right has really outdone itself like you can definitely hear this in this collection so she's also touring in may so you can listen to growing pains and then go head over to her website check out the tour dates book your ticket george alice watch her now and then i'm sure we'll be watching her for years to come So into the fact that we are talking about artists touring again. (laughs) I just feel like it has been so long since we talked about buying tickets to see people in person. So definitely get around it. Everyone, artists have suffered during this pandemic. They haven't had the same support that other professions have had with JobKeeper and the like. Get out there, spend your money and support the arts. If you are, however... Not doing that, but staying in. If you are staying in and doing some cooking this weekend, I want to send you back to basics. I have spent my whole life, everyone, my whole life as an ardent baker trying to find the perfect scone recipe and I found it. Took a while, but I have found it. These are the best, the best, it says it on the website, the best British current scones. You can bin the currants if you don't want to involve them. They are on the International Dessert blog. So you just Google International Dessert blog and you will make it. The best British currant scones. They are light, they are fluffy, and most importantly, they are really easy to make. They differ from a lot of the scones you would have had, particularly American scones, because they use less sugar and less butter. That sounds awful and cruel and mean, but it's not. It just means that you need to reinsert that butter and sugar in your toppings. And I often find that if I have an American scone and then I cover it with jam and cream, I'm like, huh, there's too much going on. It's too sweet. It's overwhelming. This way, the scone is simpler, but you can add the additions of deliciously salty butter or some sugary cream. These are 10 out of 10. I am someone who seems to mess up scones every time. These ones are fail safe and the currants are delightful. 
And if you're looking for a very wholesome little weekend, you can take my earlier recommendation of calling the midwife while making some scones. There's nothing like a good foundation to a scone, you know? You're right. You do need a savoury base. I love that. Thanks, Tate, for your recommendations. Thanks, everyone, for listening. That's it for the weekend briefing today. If you would like to make sure that you never miss an episode of ours or indeed of the weekday briefing, you want to be across the news in this election year, make sure that you subscribe. You can do that in the listener app or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a rating and a review. It will help other people learn about the briefing and the weekend briefing. We will be back in your ears bright and early Monday morning from 6am where Tom Tilly and the team will have the latest headlines straight to your headphones. Listener.